Hello, I'm Suresh Shankar, founder and CEO of Crayon Data. Welcome to the finale of season one of my podcast, Slaves to the Algo. The idea of the podcast was to demystify the age of the algorithm. I connected with several leaders globally. I enjoyed speaking to every one of them about how algorithms and data are changing their personal and professional lives. I learned a lot, especially new ways to think about how professionals like you and me need to adapt in this new age. I hope some of those thoughts resonated with you in those episodes. The Crayon Data team put together 10 great moments from these chats, a highlight showreel, if you will. So let's get straight to it. The top 10 moments of season one of Slaves to the Algo. Number 10, digital irrelevance is not just an annoyance for consumers, it's a trillion dollar problem for enterprises. Let me start with the age of relevance. Relevance has always been the holy grail for marketers. Here's a staggering fact. Consumer research conducted by Harvard and Accenture showed that in the US alone, companies lose $1 trillion of revenue annually to their competitors simply by not being consistently relevant enough. Relevance is also no longer about just being the benchmark in your own industry or in comparison to your competitors. Once a consumer is impressed by a highly relevant, personalized, responsive approach from one brand, they bring those expectations to all the experiences that they expect from all brands in all categories. But what does being relevant really mean? It isn't a new word. We try to be relevant to our customers all the time. It's just not a word that we've used a lot. A simple definition of relevance is the state of being appropriate given the context and meeting the requirements of the customer given the moment. And HBR's study on the age of relevance talks about the evolution of marketing over the decades from mass marketing to segmentation to customer lifetime values. The 2010s was the age of loyalty use CRM, tailored incentives, advanced retention techniques. The same study says that we are now entering the age of relevance, mass communication to the much sought after and spoken about, but previously unattainable segment of one. And in this age of relevance, marketing has evolved from the traditional four P's, product, promotion, place, and price, to a new set of five P's, purpose, the need to feel that the company shares my values and advances them. Pride, the need for me to feel proud and inspired to use the company's products and services. Protection, the need for me to feel secure when doing business with the company. Partnership, the need for me to feel that the company relates to and works well with other partners. But it is the fifth P in this new age of relevance that is driving the biggest change in marketing, personalization. The need for consumers to feel that my experience with the company is being constantly tailored to my needs, my priorities, my requirements in the moment. Let's face it, every person on the planet believes that she or he is unique. And every person also believes that companies treat her just the same as they treat everybody else, or even worse, as a statistic. So how do you make billions of people, or let's say if you're a company with tens of millions of customers, feel that way as an individual. The good news is advances in data and analytics and AI 
Make this possible today. You can offer personalization at scale. Number nine, from T.S. Anil of Monzo Bank. The bigger barrier than the legacy of technology is the legacy of thinking and mindsets. You know, so you're going to cost me a lot of friends with, with whatever I say over here, or I'm going to be buying makeup drinks for lots of friends. Uh, Same friends, Anil. <laughs> <laughs> so here's the thing. I think uh, I said technology is not a barrier because everybody has access to it, but that is, but having access to technology and being able to leverage it are different things, right? Um, you know, they say God built the world in seven days because he had no legacy to start with. And that's true, <laughs> right? If you're, if you're working off of a legacy platform, it's really hard to embed new capability in it without massive amounts of change control expenses and, you know, back, uh, back testing to make sure that everything works. It's not, it's not easy to start with legacy and then try and execute the capabilities that are there. Right? That alone makes a, a pretty significant difference in how people leverage data. Um, so you're seeing the impact of that when you look at any incumbent industry and, and you know, the challenger segment within the industry. Um, and I think for us, uh, you know, happy to talk more about uh, the way I think about it or the way, you know, what and stuff that we're doing at Monzo. I think we're able to start with the end right? And not have to incrementalize our way to an outcome. And that's a pretty big difference, I think, because we don't need, so you can leverage the best of technology as it exists today. And in fact, you can probably call where it's going somewhat and build towards that end state right off the bat, so it's, which is a pretty big difference. And, and could you give us a couple of examples of that? I mean, how, you know, you're doing it, it's designed data first, it's completely designed. It's like, you know, it's like God created a bank today, right? And that's what Monzo is trying to be. Uh, yeah, so if we, well, like, lots of examples, right? I'll give you a simple sort of user-facing example. Uh, we're not putting an app in front of a in front of an analog bank, right? We're a digital bank by design, and you know people call it digital first, mobile first, things like that. So all of those phrases which all capture the same thing that you're building for that you, that world first, and that's what it's optimized for. And almost anything else is an afterthought. Right, and the same thing when you think about a data platform or a data infrastructure or anything, you're starting with what the end state ought to look like and what you want to be able to do with it. And that leapfrogging, I think, is pretty profound. Mm -hmm. Number eight, Tim Kobe of 18. Digital allows us to create vast play fields for testing and validating new hypotheses backed by data. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the feedback systems have gotten far more sophisticated over, over the years, obviously. Um, you know, we, we used to build a mock-up uh, of a space and and bring people through and then do a sort of informal survey. And if that works, okay, we'll, we'll try it. And then we roll it out and, you know, get it in the field. Um, you know, but I think that, you know, today there's all sorts of testing uh, work we've done with Lincoln in China. Uh, the testing was was basically every time we had a new proposition, it was, uh, you know, focus groups looked at it. We got feedback from different segments, et cetera. Um, we're doing work with with one of the biggest banks in Thailand. Uh, we have been doing research um, regularly with uh, consumer segments to ensure that that the focus is going to be something that's that's not just an incremental change, but a, but a dramatic but positive change. So you know the the methodologies in those in, in those applications still include uh, you know formal surveys, but on top of that, 
Now we're, we're getting information that comes through behavior of ongoing um, activities. So uh, work we're doing with Xiaomi in China, for example, um, you know, they have a 50 million uh, person group called Me Fans. And the Xiaomi mm-hmm. fans, when they, when they put out a new product, uh, Xiaomi will introduce it to their fan base. And the fans basically give, they critique it. They're doing all of this online on their mobile device, what have you, and they'll critique it. So Xiaomi knows before they ever spend a penny on the tooling, whether this product is going to be a success or not. It's an extraordinarily powerful thing. Um, and what we've helped them develop is uh, a, a system that's used through their retail where, where you look, you look all the information you get when you're browsing a product uh, completely through the transaction and payment uh, is done on your mobile device. So we don't need cash wraps anymore. We don't need any of these things. But what happens is, you know, Xiaomi probably gets 100 times more insights through tracking the behavior of what people look at and buy, what they look at and they don't buy, where they where they fall out of that user flow in terms of, you know, was it price, color, availability, et cetera. Um, but it gives it gives their customers basically a breadth of, of um, capability, it allows them to see, you know, the space may only hold 200 products, but but they make 2000 products. So it gives them the ability to sell 2000 products now out out of a um, out of a, a what was the traditional retail space, but it's because it's become this virtual platform. Number seven, Ravi Santana of HDFC Bank. I love this one. Data levels the playing field in the boardroom. The person with the data, normally the youngest, wins more arguments than the highest paid person. See, the first thing is it'll become more pervasive than what it is today. I think more decisions are going to be taken basis data. And more people are going to ask you this question, how much testing you have done before you scale up. Mm-hmm. I think that's, that's going to become uh, test and learn is going to become a normal part of a culture in many big organizations. And that's one thing which I would love to see also. And because that actually takes, uh, makes everybody equal in a big boardroom. So I used to keep joking True. that uh, I used to keep joking that because of digital hippo is out of the room. So the highest paid person's opinion count is no more in a possible in a boardroom purely because of the fact that yes, all perceptions we will go and test and consumer wins. So or, that's or should I say in- the famous Divar line, you know, there'll be one nerd who comes in and says, Mere paas data hai. Uh-huh. Exactly. <laughs> that's going to happen. You know, they're going to come back and tell you, like, you can say whatever you want to say with 25 years of experience, Ravi, but this is what the consumers are saying and this is what the data is saying. So that's going to increase tremendously. Number six, Jeff Jonas of Sensing. This one is deep. Entity resolution is at the heart of every single data problem that exists today. There is no AI without entity resolution. You know, the very first system that I built that uh, was matching identities, and it, it didn't need, it took years before I realized it was a trend and it was, it was something inside of everything, almost everything. Um, but uh, it was worked for a collection agency that goes and collects bad debt. And they would send five notices to the same person. One was, you know, five different debts or call them five times. But you really want to just call them once and go, hey, you have five bills. And, you know, I built that in the 80s and didn't think anything of it. And then in the early 90s, the casinos wanted to combine data, their guests, their loyalty club, and they want to see how that related to, like, people that they shouldn't let into the casino. And that's a matching problem. That's an interesting matching problem because people that are clever, like, 
kind of evil, clever bastards, so to speak, are um, they don't use the same name and address on every record. Like they're always just one person has 32 different names, five different dates of birth. So how do you how do you do that? So we saw that in the 90s. And then I did, I built another one and another one. I built five, my team and I built five of these engines before we realized it we were building the same engine over and over for different purposes. And then we started to generalize it. And then over time, you just realize it's at the center of healthcare, it's at the center of banking, KYC and AML, it's at the center of marketing. I mean, if you can't combine data, you can't make high quality decisions with the algos. It struck me, I went, you, the future is where our systems, where the data finds the data and the things that are relevant find you. Then it doesn't matter what order the data arrives. It's about systems that help focus human attention. And it's such a higher order thing than, than systems waiting for humans to ask questions. And I've really been pursuing that. In fact, an entity resolution is call it a building block of a of a of more layers in a stack that are going to produce real sense-making systems, systems that integrate diverse observations and figure out when it's relevant and, and if it's relevant, and if so, to who. And, and that's really my interest. But if you don't solve entity resolution, you can't do that well. Number five, Tim Kobe again. Don't worry about machines taking over the world. Worry about the human beings who have a lot of data doing so. Human uh, uh, needs at the same time as, as you know, technical criteria. And I think that, that his ability to work with both of those were fundamental. And that's very interesting because what you're saying is there's a lot of data that can inform you at a, you know, almost if you will, I'm trying to parse this at a feature level, this is the right thing to do, this is what people are going, but there's a higher level of data. It's almost like a metaphysical plane, you know, when you're talking about how something, the outcome of that makes you feel. So it's like a higher order attribute mm. that you're seeking. So um, it must have been quite magical, but you know, again, just, uh, just staying on Apple, I don't want to make this about Apple, but you've been an yeah. Apple veteran in terms yeah. of design yeah. for a while. It's now a company with yeah. Tim, who's, uh, again, an extraordinary stood for, but it's become a very efficient company. Everything just works. So is that becoming mm -hmm. more, I mean, are they, are they kind of now led more, more by data? I mean, I, I know he's taken some stands against on privacy, on mm -hmm. other causes. But is it becoming more a company that's about data and it's about um, you know logical thinking in your experience? Well, I, I mean, you know, uh, I, I think Steve's Steve's Apple and Tim's Apple are are two different companies, and and Tim, you know, rightly so, is steering it in the direction that that he believes is is the most uh, um, most ideal for an ex extension of this brand. I don't think it's it's data versus no data. I, I don't really see it in that sense. I think it's are we are we focusing on the human outcomes in in a positive way, and if so, then what are the tools to achieve that? So I I think it's a it's somewhat of a false polarity that that you you, you know that you shouldn't have, you should either have or not have uh, data driven insights. I think what what he's doing is moving a company as much into services as he is into, into you know, hardware. And that, that Apple has always had a, that relationship uh, between hardware and software. And um, so to me, it, it feels like a very natural extension of, of the core brand values. And I think then it comes down to what, you know, what are the things that you're doing that reinforce that?
And I think, you know, you can look at, you can look at um, other companies um, as well. I mean, you know, look, look at the, the evolution of Netflix and how it's, how it's helped change its, um, uh, its experience with their customers. Um, you know, I think, you know, Apple, Apple could have been doing what Netflix is doing today. But, um, you know, next Netflix was able to come in and I think have a very successful application of that, the new algorithm of value. True, true. Um, I don't want to make this all about Apple. I mean, I know that your accomplishments and some of the stuff that you go way beyond what you've done with Apple. So sure. I'm just shifting a little bit. You've written this uh, book. You've kind of got this moment called The Return and Experience. And um, that's quite a fascinating thing. Number four, Ian Miles of Area 51. Don't worry about algorithms, worry about the cognitive biases of the people behind them. And AI needs to be made more explainable, much like food labeling. But the designers were really interested in the human uh, aspect. And a place we zoomed into was cognitive bias. And cognitive bias is huge right now because one, it's foundational for beginning your AI journey but it's really come to the mainstream in society as a whole uh, in uh, movements like Black Lives Matter or how discriminatory uh, society is in many, many ways. Uh, and so I find it very, very interesting. I cited a bunch of examples, you'll know them, they're out there, about uh, rudimentary machine learning platforms were discriminating when it comes in the hiring process. Now, I'll give you a good example, I'll give you a bad example. Uh, Amazon in Scotland, a uh, bunch of engineers built a, an algorithm to filter resumes. And the data set mm -hmm. they fed it was predominantly male. Because guess what? In engineering, it's a predominantly male landscape. So the machine just filtered out all the women. Like women, eh, women, eh. And of course, you know, you don't want to rile Scottish women. That certainly did. They had to shut it down really. <laughs> <laughs> they, had to, they had to shut it down real fast. And they looked at it and they said, well, there was too much cognitive bias in the coding that was going on by males for males. And, and, and I say that because I got a daughter who's raised in Silicon Valley and she's hypersensitive to these gender biased environments and, and their points of view. One of the great learnings that we're getting that cascades down uh, from the National Health Service in the UK. And they're mandating that AI is explainable. Transparency in publishing is not enough because most of us don't understand it. I mean, if we were to give an average person in the street a sheet of Mozart's scratchings, we wouldn't understand any of it. Um, so there's a very small percentage of people actually understand the math behind the coding and the statistics and the predictive analytics to give you um, a percentage of an outcome that you might be looking for. Um, but you can still explain it to people. You don't have to have that uh, PhD level uh, uh, capacity to write that level of uh, math. And so the National Health Service, uh, which is a huge influencer, is mandating explainable AI. So if AI is going to act on you in any way, shape or form, you must be made aware of that and you must have it explained to you at a level that you can understand it. Number three, John Kim of Expedia. More than data scientists, independent entrepreneurial thinkers will be the visionaries who ensure the data brings us to places where no one has ever been. So like if, if you think about it at the highest level, one of the things that you would anticipate in this new world that's being run by algorithms is 
um, hey, when people go into schools to recruit, um, you would think that the number one thing that people are looking for are people with data science degrees. And uh, you'd say, okay, I, I need data scientists. I need people who can do math. And that is absolutely true. Like people are going to schools and, and looking for that. Um, I went to University of Chicago, which is known as a quant school. Mm -hmm. And so it is the hotbed for data science and doing advanced math and da da da. And um, I asked the alumni, you know, new students that were coming out, um, graduating school. I said, oh, wow. So University of Chicago must be really doubling down on data science. And this is what you're being recruited for. And uh, the students told me, no, that's the exact opposite of what's happening. And I said, opposite, tell me more. The number one place that people are recruiting from is the School of Entrepreneurship. And I thought, that's interesting. And so I think that in general, what companies are looking for is that all of this, the data, the algorithms, like we, we talk about brands, what they need more than ever before is independent thinkers entrepreneurial thinkers, people who are, who are thinking about these problems and saying, okay, how do you run a business? How do you attract consumers? It's not good enough just to give, put a weight vest into the Amazon marketplace and let the algorithms figure it out or even write an algorithm because it can be uninteresting. You know, like mm -hmm. when I think about the Flipkart um, folks, you know, I was reading a Medium article about them. And they had started Flipkart as basically a review site, right? And so what they wanted to do is collect reviews of different things that you buy in India and then rank them. And then they, they figured something out that's an entrepreneurial insight, not a data science insight, which is, wow, most of these products are crap. So what's the point? What's the point of like comparing like one product versus another if they're both low quality? And so, you know, it really changed our mindset, right? Which was, oh, no, no, no. We should build a different type of business. We should build a business that's introducing to the Indian market much higher quality products, you know, and, and so on. And, and I just think like, you know, how, do you, how does that happen? It, it's, there's no formula. And I think that's the part where you say it's not an algorithm. It's actually people really thinking about the human problem, having that, that real insight, and then saying, that's a business opportunity to go solve. And then algorithms and tech, that will be easier to access and assemble and integrate than ever before. I think about the Shopify market, mm -hmm. and what makes it super compelling is that you go to the marketplace, and all of these companies are building every single component. And the way you integrate any of this tech is you click a button, right? And you want shipping? Click this button. You want to have a tax calculator? Click this button. You want to have CRM? Click this button. And then you don't, what you don't say, Suresh, is let me go hire a tech team to integrate it. Actually, mm. you go in and you say, what color do you want it to be? What's your branding? What's your logo? Like, do you want it to do this or do you want to do that to right? And, and then you're, you, you realize in like 30 minutes, you've put together a store, right? And I think that's the future is that when we start to think about how uh, Expedia is going to organize, that was one of your questions, is that Expedia internally, like we think about building all of our technology in that way where it's just a set of applications for, mm -hmm. for Expedia Group. And so what we want is we want to unlock like incredible entrepreneurship in travel, which is don't worry about any of this stuff. 
then you want to hire people who are brilliant at looking at markets and trying things and having an entrepreneurial spirit. But and, and many, I would say, traditional middle managers today, that may not be how they think of their role. They may not think of themselves that way. They may not have the opportunity. They may not know how to do that. And so if I had an encouragement for everybody, it's learn to be more entrepreneurial. Number two, CP Janardhan of MasterCard. Increasingly, consumers see data as an emotional asset and enterprises need to think about the concept of data philanthropy or data as a force for good, not just profit. There, which brings me to the next thing. You talked about data being an emotional asset. Yes. And uh, I'm going to add, what, what exactly do you mean by that? And I'm going to add a second question. Uh, uh -huh. Actually owns the data about me. I mean, should it be me? Should it be a digital giant? Should it be the bank uh, or, or the airline? So who owns the data? Who should own the data about me? So, and, and why is this? Why do you call it an emotional asset? So I call it as an emotional asset because it, it is things that are deeply personal to me that profile me as an individual. So it is something that is extremely personal to me. So think about it this way, right? I have whatever, a wardrobe. Everybody has shirts, everybody has trousers, everybody has jackets and whatever else in the wardrobe. But my wardrobe is deeply personal to me. Same way the data about my behavior, my preferences, my inclination is deeply personal to me. So if you flip it and ask somebody, hey, you know what? Do you know that I got this data about you, which is deeply personal? I think you feel in a way an emotional loss that you should have known about it and you did not know about it. It almost looks like an intrusion. Right? We all think about when I figure out that there is some data that has been used that is deeply personal to me. I feel emotionally bad or good about it, right? And that places where people really feel good about data. So, you know, at some other stage, we should talk about data philanthropy. I think that is one of the big trends that is going to come you know, for organizations to debate and for individuals to debate. But I think of every time I permission my data to use, it should fall into the bucket of it makes my life simpler. Mm -hmm. It helps me make intelligent choices or it helps somebody else do something better. It is a philanthropy kind of thing. So I and and, think and that's fascinating. What do you mean by data philanthropy? You're talking about people like um, you know, like large companies opening up data sets for others to use. Is that what you mean? It is that. And for donating data, you know, which with express permissions, which people may not have had access to, but for good. Right? There's a lot of data can do a lot of good. We continuously focus on. Yeah, uh, and I have a simplistic way. We continuously focus on saying use of data sometimes is always in some case a loss to the individual. It is actually enormous gain. If data, my data can be used for collective good, that is enormous gain. I, I would feel really good to participate in that. And people do that, right? People will disclose their blood group types. People will disclose lots of, you know, uh, health conditions and trials because they believe this is for the collective good, right? So it's an emotional asset. I need to feel good about giving my data and I need not feel bad when I use it. That's why I call it an emotional asset.
in data philanthropy is going to get real data philanthropy is going to get real both from individuals and organizations number 1 john kim again 90% of the data that will exist in 2023 has not yet been created so let's be prepared for a constant stream of new algorithms and users of data yeah you know, the the way i think about it sarash and it's really interesting because i also think that your company is in a very interesting position to take advantage of this trend is i read this stat that 90% of the world's data was created in the last 24 months right so i think that's a very interesting stat and then when you project forward that tells you hey the data that or the businesses that will you know take advantage like what data streams will they take advantage of they haven't even been created but mm-hmm. when we create them there will be new algorithms that emerge and so um i i think about one use case at least in the states they haven't always uh, digitized all of their police records this is just an example is that what they would do with their police records is they would write them down on paper right and then put them into a file and then when things happened like you'd go into the file and you'd extract like hey let me read up about what what occurred these events that occurred and so you know these companies have merged to take these records and just digitize them and trend them and plot them and then think about geography and they're full of insights and so it's hard to believe i would say it's hard to believe that we hadn't taken advantage of that data really until like contemporary times that's amazing to me and so you start to think about all of the places where you start to say where you start to ask where is it that we need data that we don't actually have it or we've never written it down or it just has gone to die and so we're entering a new world where we're be able to like track everything there's this interesting company that I was uh I was thinking about the other day which is you know one of the things that I I do twice a day is I'm always checking my blood for sugar levels and and mm-hmm. the reason why I'm doing that is that I'm doing that for health like hey what are my sugar levels and what am I eating and i don't want to like spike my sugar and i think that's like really good for diet management and whatnot and not everybody's brave enough to check their blood of twice a day but it's actually pretty trivial and i do that but it is so unsatisfying because i'm only taking two data points a day which is better than you know dead nears go where i had no 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 sense of it and then i could correlate it to what i ate i can say oh i ate this thing and it spiked and then there's ways to actually reduce it by actually taking a walk for 30 minutes. There's so many things I could do for my health. Mhm. that um and and yet I don't do that because I'm not accessing the data in a real real-time form. And so I think problems like that over like the next few years they will be solved. And then we will see algorithms that help us and notify us and you know you it'll be a complement. It'll be a assistant for everybody to main, maintain better health maintain better diets maintain so on and so forth so you can just think of all of the endless applications that will be developed just in this one little thing and so that's that's what i would say to the viewers is that hey most of the algorithms that will impact your lives they don't even exist yet but they're that's coming that's very interesting so those were my top 10 moments of season 1 of slaves to the algo After listening to our guests, the questions continue to intrigue me. Are we slaves to the algo? Can we become its master? Either way, data and algorithms will continue to be an intrinsic part of our lives, perhaps even more so. 
We'll be back with more in February with season two of Slaves to the Algo. 2020 has been one heck of a roller coaster, and I hope you'll stay safe through the holiday period and stay relevant in the next year. This is Suresh Shankar, founder and CEO of Crayon Data and host of Slaves to the Algo. Stay connected with us on LinkedIn at Crayon Data or me at Suresh V. Shankar. And do me a favor, hit the like button, subscribe to the podcast, and share this widely with your network. See you next year. Thank you.